please be seated. As you just heard, the, today's gospel passage ends with Matthew's classic reference, purportedly from Jesus' own mouth, to being cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the sixth and final time we hear this remark that almost reads like a prophecy. But when you think about it, the words could only function as a prophecy if God worked according to the worldly world order, where punishment tends to feature pretty much automatically as means of balancing scales of justice, socially and theologically. Maybe this is why Jesus likes to use the parable form, because with it, he's able to create an atmosphere for us to enter into and experience the godly world order as any number of changeable circumstances play out various sets of universal values. Parables, then, as thought experiments meant to draw us into understanding the difference between the world order and the world according to God's desire. This talk of weeping and gnashing of teeth is probably more of the arresting language Jesus uses to grab our attention. Six times he says it, and that's a lot. For something to make the final cut and appear in the Bible even once is pretty significant. So six such jarring references is probably meant to highlight something of interest to Jesus. The meek king is clearly interested in making an important point. But what point? That God is like a wealthy landowner and we're God's slaves and we had better do a good job of maximizing return on investment? Not sure. But I, I'm not sure that that's very much in keeping with the same Jesus who not three weeks ago in this very pulpit taught us to see everything through the lens of the two greatest commandments. Love God, love neighbor and self. His point would seem then to be about love. So there is probably a worthier interpretation. In fact, I've begun to believe that there's not some single correct interpretation, but rather a lot of helpful interpretations. And I recently stumbled upon a reason why that rings so true. A week or so ago, at evening prayer, we commemorated the life and work of Marjorie Kemp, an early 15th century English mystic who wrote what's considered the first English language autobiography. In it, she details much of her life experience, most notably the harrowing physical and mental crisis she endured after giving birth to her first child. For eight months, Marjorie struggled mightily, alternating between visions of demons goading her to self-destruction and conversations with Jesus who encouraged her to try and stop torturing herself by speaking with him in her mind, which took some practice, 
during which her continuing struggles were not silent ones. She threw herself about and made lots of noise in the streets, which unsurprisingly earned her a questionable notoriety. Writing about her experiences then turned into a spiritual exercise. And being the early 1500s, reviews of her book were mixed. You know, both glowing praise and multiple heresy trials. In time, however, Marjorie sought guidance from one of her contemporaries, Julian of Norwich, who counseled her to be steadfast because the challenges she'd faced had indeed brought about a charitable spirit in her. Measure these, ex these experiences, said the saint, according to the worship they accrue to God and the spiritual benefit to you and your fellow Christians. This is a sentiment very much in keeping with Jesus' teaching on the two great commandments. And not only that, Julian's words also help as part of the framework we're going to use to interpret this spiky parable. Here's what I mean. Number one, aligned with the greatest commandment, are we looking for the way this parable is about love? Do we recognize its purpose regarding the worship it accrues to God and the benefit to us and our neighbors? Two, are we mindful that it's a parable about a kingdom of heaven that is now, that isn't locked into an equation where one of the potential results is an afterlife of torment? You know, weeping and gnashing in the dark. And three, and this is the part I think that speaks with the greatest power in terms of the story before us today, because Jesus variously speaks of the kingdom of heaven as being near or at hand or among you and finally within you. What does it mean to you that the kingdom of heaven in this parable characterizes something inside you? a wealthy man goes on a trip and leaves three of his slaves with various large amounts of money to, well, the text doesn't say what the man expects them to do with the money he entrusts them with. That's the setup. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the within you part is about how it's apparently left to each of the trustees in question to imagine the best course of action. Now, let's consider the wealthy man. He plays an interesting part in this drama. Like most of the men or kings in parables, a goodly wonder rises as to whether they represent the kind of God you actually want to worship. I mean, last week's bridegroom, for example, is often seen as Jesus, or was, and that's a good example. Is Jesus really the kind of trickster who can't wait to lock out half the bridesmaids? And today's wealthy man, if seen as representing God, quickly becomes a dubious God because of the way he's so disposed toward punishment. But while this man isn't God, there's still something about his role that is crucial in terms of how we think about God. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. According to our interpretation framework, the greatest commandment is to love God. It is impossible, then, that God is allowed not to live up to the same commandment. 
the same invitation, if you will. Yes, I have long believed that biblical commandments of any kind are better thought of as invitations because it's so much more in keeping with love, the love theme that Jesus has going. No, if what we understand about Jesus' parables is to hold true, our task in interpreting them is to find the place where an infusion of love is most needed, where it will make the most difference. And I submit that such a place in today's story is with the third slave, who the wealthy man is so determined to punish. And why? Because this particular slave embodies the important point Jesus has been trying to make regarding something inside you, something that has amazingly far-reaching implications. And I'd like to offer that this something has everything to do with the difference in the imagination of the slaves. The first two seem to have, if not a glowing positive mindset, then at least a benign one. They're not paralyzed by fears, fearful thoughts about their master. No, they go ahead and play with the pile of cash put in their care and ka-ching, things work out for them. But the third slave is not like the first two. His imagination of his master is not benign. And that makes all the difference because it comes out in his behavior. It drives his behavior, really. And this is what has far-reaching implications for us. Could Jesus be drawing us into recognizing the connection between what we imagine, what we focus on, and our resulting life experience? Maybe. Which is not to say that if I improve my attitude, I'll automatically acquire everything I desire. No. That could too quickly become about fear because of how the more you have, the more you want. But, and this is where the wealthy man in the parable comes back in, my attitude is still a significant factor. The wealthy man may be a very dubious stand-in for God on one hand, but on the other, he serves as a lightning rod for the fear factor. And I probably don't have to tell you that the real God has been put in that position too, too often and for far too long. So maybe the point Jesus is making goes like this. If not allowing fear to drive me when it comes to a worldly power figure can result in positive outcomes, how much more astoundingly wonderful might outcomes be when fear ceases to be a factor when it comes to the power figure that is the God of a love so perfect it casts out even understandable fear. What would be different in your life if you were to explore this form of fearlessness? What would it have to do with measuring even your most troubling experiences according to the worship they accrue to God and the spiritual benefit to you and your fellows? Could the outcome be that personal and even professional encounters might change even a little for the better? I'd actually be willing to bet that there isn't a single area of life that wouldn't benefit. And finally, it is interesting on 
how on its face this parable is about money. It's even about how the slaves in question are stewards of the master's money. Accordingly, this story is often told during stewardship season. But as you can tell, I don't think it's actually about money as much as it is about fear. Fear of the master in the story and fear about money, which may be even more of a stewardship issue. One that we politely don't speak of with great frequency in faith community, which is maybe okay because Probably what's even more important than conversing with one another about it is for me to remember how imagination works in this parable and then go deeper inside myself and notice how my own imagination might be working. Notice whether there is any fear that's driving how I experience stewardship in my beloved faith community. And then begin to imagine a parable-like atmosphere that's not about fear, but is instead all about feelings of safety and belonging and love and love and love and love. It is abundantly clear that there are many in this community who understand what I'm talking about, what we've been exploring today, even if they don't use all the exact same words to express it. And I share this message today as, a, as an offering of the very, very deepest thanks. And to those for whom these ideas might be new, it is my fervent and joyful, joyful prayer that they will be received as an invitation of the warmest and most affirming kind. <laughs>